0: This woman went to the Laguna Beach police. Uh, they, they did a search warrant of this little storage unit that he kept in the desert in Cathedral City. And there they found cyanide, they found zip ties, and they found a gun. The, uh, the point of all of those things has never been explained, but the speculation is he was planning to kill this woman after taking her money.
1: Welcome to the Jim Rohn Podcast. What's going on? Episode number 17. Great to be here. And let me just beat you to the punch. Somebody already made a Kip Winger joke on the radio program yesterday. Still not funny. Never was. Never will be. Now, I have said this before. I got into the podcast game so I can do different things and talk to different people. And this is a great example of that. Christopher Goffard is an author and a staff writer for the Los Angeles Times, also the creative force behind the excellent podcast, Dirty John. Dirty John is a white knuckle thriller. It's a horror movie told in six different parts about a con man and a predator, John Meehan, and the family that he tormented. Even scarier, it's all real, and it took place right in my backyard, right here in SoCal. Gofford has been a reporter for 20 years. His work has been awarded a Pulitzer Prize, and he has been a finalist two more times. His first novel, Snitch Jacket, was a finalist for the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best First Novel by an American Author. He has covered some scary subjects. The Aryan Brotherhood prison gang, fugitive vigilante ex-cop Christopher Dorner, and none of his subjects have scared him quite like John Meehan. And once you hear our conversation, I think you'll understand why. Lock in. The Jim Rohn podcast starts right after this word from our pals at Omaha Steaks. It is the holiday season, so let me ask you a quick question. Is there anybody on your list that you simply do not know how to shop for? I know there is. We all have people like that. And now I've got the solution to that problem, Omaha Steaks. Let me tell you about Omaha Steaks and how for only $49.99 you can get my family gift pack when you go to omahasteaks.com and you enter my code ROAM in the search bar. That's 75% off. Omaha Steaks offers unique gifts for gourmet food lovers. This is the best gift ever, especially for somebody that you do not know how to shop for. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving an exclusive savings just to my listeners. Listen to everything you get for less than $50. bucks: 2 filet mignons, two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, four kielbasa sausages, four burgers, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha Steaks seasoning packet, and four additional kielbasa sausages for free. It is an amazing deal and an even better gift go to omahasteaks.com enter my code Rome in the search bar and you get a 75% savings it is the gift guaranteed to be a hit omahasteaks.com enter my code Rome I'm telling you it is the best gift that you can give Omaha Steaks it is that time once again Believe it or not, we had a hot streak going of barely passable, barely playable voicemails running on this podcast. And for this segment, barely passable and barely playable is about as good as this thing is ever going to get. But it all ended last week, so I put out the bat signal for new blood and better messages yesterday in the jungle, and now it's time to see whether or not you have answered the call, because the machine is officially on life support, and don't think that I won't rip that plug out of the wall, because you know I will. That's no idle threat. You go ahead and ask yourself, what do you think I want to be known for? Sharp, fascinating interviews, or drunks and stoners on an answering machine? Right. So let's find out if you've steered this thing back in the right direction or if it's face down in the gutter right where you left it last time.
2: You have 10 new messages. First new message. Hi, Realm. This is Hope Solo. Thank you for your support for my USSF presidential campaign. Just want to say anyone who doesn't vote for me is a coward like those Swedish bitches. Message deleted. Next message. Well, hey, Jim. This is uh,
1: Brian from Cleveland. 20 years I've been listening to you. You are simply the best in the biz, my man. My take? That is my take. i got a couple of wars here. Wore the smoked meat
2: sandwich in Montreal. Wore the multicolored screwdriver set, which,
1: you're right, Jim, always had a crack case. Wore the rum chata and wore Jim Rome.
2: Message saved. Next message.
1: Hey Romy, it's uh, Chris in Tampa. Uh, gonna, you said I, we could do a couple of impressions. Uh, I do legitimate ones, so uh, here we go. Um, uh, Mike, why do you talk like that? Well, fuck it, it's a fight. I talk how I want to talk. You don't like it? You change your station. Uh, keep it classy, Mike. Uh, yeah, fuck you.
2: Message deleted. Next message.
1: Hey Rome. Jed in Illinois here. I got a message to you from John Elway. I couldn't really make it out very well, but it goes something like this.
2: Message deleted. Next message.
1: Mack, this is Sheldon from Detroit. Disgusted with all my teams, with my Lions, with my Pistons, with
2: the Red Wings.
1: With Harbaugh, I'd almost rather be a
2: Cleveland Browns fan. I don't care if you rap me. I don't care if you smack me. Just give me new teams. Message saved. Next message. Jim, this is Vlad in Moscow. Let me know when this Brian Vogel is going to be back on. Thank you. And as you say, I'm out. Message deleted. Next message. Ben Smack! Mike in Buffalo. Big win for the Bills today. In the fucking blizzard, I'm with The Rock. Rock, who's going to play quarterback for the Bills? It doesn't matter who's going to play quarterback for the Bills! Message saved. Next message. Hey, this is Ben in Nebraska, and I just got to say, Cleveland Browns fans, I don't feel sorry for them one bit. If they ever met anyone from Ohio, they are literally the worst America has to offer. Ohio is the United States equivalent of leaving your underwear on for one day too long. What the heck does Ohio have to offer the world? Bush light and crippling economic depression? I'm out. Message deleted. Next message. Yeah, this is Heath in Iowa. I'm so tired of hearing about Aaron Glassjaw Rogers and Wentz. How about you stay in the pocket? How about you don't run, bitch? You wouldn't get hurt. Message deleted. Next message. Hi there. Uh, This is Andy from Rockland. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about Jim. You remind me of a happy person that when you talk, it brings smiles to people's ears. Okay. That's what I wanted to say, and I didn't say it right in the first place, but your voice makes people smile, okay? All right. Merry Christmas. I love you. Uh, I love you there. Okay, bye. Message saved. You have no more messages.
1: Damn. All right, let me try and unpack what I just heard. Hope Solo thanking me for my support of her presidency of the USSF. You're welcome, Hope. Hashtag, Hope's no dope. Chris in Tampa doing his Mike Tyson impression. How about John Elway winning into my voicemail? Then you had Vlad in Moscow looking for my man Brian Fogle. Ben in Nebraska taking a run at Ohio. And good old Andy in Rockland saying, quote, My voice brings smiles to people's ears. And well, I want to thank Brian in Cleveland for 20 years of listening and thanks to Sheldon in the D for his fire take on Detroit sports. Here's what we need to have happen, folks. If you want this voicemail to make it to C-2018, here's exactly what I'm looking for. New blood, better takes, better jokes, better impressions. Do not guzzle a gallon of rum chata and start pounding the voicemail with the first thing that comes to your mind. Think it through. Treat this thing with a little respect. It's a direct line into me. Therefore, it is a reflection of me. So dial it up put more effort in losers and make one of your new year's resolutions to make this voicemail salvageable here's the number once again 949-385-0447 listen before you put that in your phone commit to it before i yank this thing out of the wall once and for all 949-385-0447 it's the holiday season so let me ask you this how y'all living Probably you're stressed out. Probably you're far behind. You need some help. I've got the help and I've got the answer for you. Stamps.com. We all have things to do on our holiday do list. I mean, how many errands do you have to run right now? Stamps.com can help you save time when you need it most. With the holidays here, who has time to go to the post office? It'll be busy with people who are sending holiday cards and gifts. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Best thing ever. Easiest thing ever. They'll send you a digital scale, automatically calculating exact postage. Then Stamps.com. We even decide the best class of mail every single time. So you can print postage any day, any time because Stamps.com is always open. I use Stamps.com especially this time of year because frankly, I just do not have time to get to the post office. And right now you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four week trial plus postage and a digital scale without any long term commitment. Go to Stamps.com, hit the microphone, it's at the top of the homepage, and type in Rome. This is an amazing Offer and a great, great product. Stamps.com, enter the code name Rome. Now you can listen to Dirty John or you can read Dirty John, or like me, you can just do both. But no matter how you consume this story, through your ears or your eyes, you're going to leave with one thing for sure that's an appreciation for the storyteller. Because Christopher Gofford put in the work. 11 months of reporting, three and a half months of podcast production. It's his voice that you'll hear telling the story, serving as his own narrator, and meticulously pouring over 50,000 words of scripted storytelling. This thing will grab you by the throat from episode one and not let go until the closing credits. Now, this is the time where I'm supposed to say, spoiler alert. Only I'm not sure it matters. This conversation plays whether you've gotten a Dirty John or not. And if you haven't, you certainly are going to want to after you hear this. Who is John Meehan?
0: John Meehan is a failed law student, a former nurse anesthetist who got hooked on the drugs. He was supposed to be giving his patients. And turned to uh, stealing drugs, lost his license, and uh, came to California and began preying on women through uh, dating sites. Um, He was a smart guy. He used his knowledge of medicine to steal drugs. He used his knowledge of the law often to keep uh, one step uh, ahead of law enforcement. He did this for years and years. He was essentially a, a serial predator, probably a sociopath.
1: All right, so tell me about his prey. Who was the type of woman that he was looking to meet?
0: Well, Deborah Newell is the woman he meets uh, at the beginning of the story, and she is an interior designer in Southern California. Um, she's uh, she's thinks she, she thinks she's found uh, the perfect guy. He shows up to dates in medical scrubs. He says that he's a doctor just back from a year volunteering with Doctors Without Borders in Iraq. So she thinks he's... Uh, He's noble. He's heroic. Um, he says he's an anesthesiologist. His joke is that he puts people to sleep for a living, and he uh, he charms her, and he's more attentive and more affectionate than uh, than any uh, than any man she's known. And very quickly, uh, she falls in love, and he pressures her. It's kind of a whirlwind situation, and uh, they go off to Vegas and they get married. To the dismay of her family when they find out, she doesn't tell them at first because she knows they will be uh, dismayed. Um, they'll think that she's rushing into it, but uh, they get married. And when they find out, they're uh, they're upset because they take an instant disliking to him.
1: So tell me more about Deborah. She she's an interior design. She's a decorator. Is she good at her job? Is she successful? How old is she?
0: Uh, Mid fifties and. Um, very good at her job, very successful, and uh, she does. She, she creates what she calls approachable dreams, which are clubhouses that she designs, model homes that she designs. Uh, yeah, she's very good at her job. Um, and part of what I think this story illustrates is that um, it's possible to be very savvy in one way, as in uh, a good business person, and uh, also very, uh, very vulnerable to uh, deception and smooth talk in another way.
1: Right, so how did these two come together? How did they meet?
0: Well, they meet on this dating site, and they go to uh, Houston's for their first date. Um, and uh, he dazzles her with these with these stories. Um, and her daughter, Jacqueline, who's uh, living with her at the time in Irvine, doesn't like the way he looks. She doesn't like the way his eyes are roaming around their apartment. She thinks that he's uh, casing the place for valuables. She's got these valuable... Bags, Birkin bags, and uh, Cartier bags, and things like that, and uh, she doesn't like them at all. And he manages to convince to convince Deborah that um, her kids are spoiled, that they don't love her, that they don't want her to be happy. And after a few uh, flare ups between herself and uh, I'm sorry between uh, between the family members and John, um, they go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and. The psychologist tells Deborah, look, you have a right to your happiness. Don't let your kids sabotage your happiness. Um, If this is the man that you've chosen to have in your life, this is your business. And your kids need to learn to respect your boundaries. Hmm. So that kind of sets the stage for this this very strange drama.
1: Also, let me take a step back to set the stage even further. You mentioned Irvine. Talk about Irvine. What is this community like?
0: Irvine is... uh, proud to be the safest city of its size in the United States, according to the FBI statistics year after year. It's a place of about a quarter million people. It is Orange County's um, utopian master-planned suburb. Um, And... uh, a lot of strange stuff happens there that you that you don't always hear about.
1: Yeah, but you wouldn't think like dangerous, violent stuff like that. But then we start to get into this story. So Deborah Newell is successful. She's very well-to-do. She has money. She meets this guy. There's a whirlwind relationship. What about John Meehan? He's got the nickname Dirty John. Where did that come from?
0: Uh, she didn't know about this at the time when she met him. Uh, it's not something he advertised. He got this in law school. He was in law school at the University of Dayton. Uh, in the late '80s, and uh, I talked to his uh, his housemate at the time, uh, who went to school with him there, and he said, uh, "Yeah, he would bring uh, he would bring girls home in uh, in large numbers, and uh, he always had a girlfriend, and then he had another girlfriend, and cheated on them all, and uh, also cheated old ladies out of uh, roofing jobs that he promised to do. Um, he." Rented his housemate a, uh, a truck that had no brakes that ran into an intersection um, He got he got this nickname I think for his treatment of women, but then it gradually grew to Encompass a lot of other stuff that he did. I mean he was doing credit card scams not even trying to hide it his uh, his law school classmates understood this and they gave him the name Dirty John sometimes they called him filthy John sometimes it was just filthy uh, mostly dirty John and uh, when he gets married in, I uh, believe it's 1990, to um, a young nurse named, uh, named Tanya Sells uh, during the wedding video, which she, which she gave me, you can hear some of, the, uh, some of the groomsmen talking about his nickname, Dirty John. And uh, afterward, Tanya watches this video and asks him, what? What does this come from? She never heard that. She had never heard this and she's about to spend the rest of her life with this guy and he brushes it off. He says, ah, it's nothing. It turns out that um, in marrying her, he had uh, given her uh, a false name. He was never Jonathan, but he told her he was Jonathan and he shaved uh, five years off his age. So he was, uh, he was an imposter in a sense for years and years and that was, that was really just one of the one of the minor, the minor varieties of his, um, of, uh, of his uh, deceptiveness. There were many, many other forms that it
1: took. Right, so this is a really bad guy. We're talking about a con man, a grifter, a criminal. You know, what's your sense of how did this guy turn out to be this guy? How did he become that manipulator and soon to find out an intimidator as well?
0: That's a tough question because there's really nothing in his life, uh, in his past, Jim, that explains him. I mean, he grew up in uh, the Los Gatos area, and uh, his father ran a casino and taught him, according to his sisters, from a very early age how to cheat, how to steal, how to run insurance scams. One thing he did when he was a young man is he would um, pour uh, glass fragments in his taco and then sue, and then sue the uh, the taco place. He would jump in front of cars and let them hit him so he can sue them. Um, Apparently, his dad taught him some of this stuff. Uh, He was also uh, embittered by his parents' divorce, which was apparently an ugly divorce. But there's really nothing in this guy's past that begins to explain the level of darkness that he ultimately descended to, which was very, very dark.
1: All right, so Dirty John and Deborah come together. Deborah, you and I have not talked about this yet, but she'd been married four times previously, which we can talk about. You mentioned the daughter, Jacqueline. Jacqueline did not like him, Jacqueline did not trust him. And then there's another da- daughter named Tara, and Tara's the youngest daughter. And Chris Tara, for her, it just did not add up. Like Tara wondered, how can this guy be a doctor but not have a car? How can this guy have houses in Newport Beach and Palm Springs, but none of them seen of them have seen the houses? How can he play Call of Duty on Deborah's seventy-inch plasma all day long when he's a doctor? These are all reasonable questions. Why did Deborah not have the same questions about John?
0: He was uh, very slick with his answers. Uh, his answer was, look, I was in Iraq for a year and my stuff got stolen. That's why I have only a, a couple bags full of clothes. Um, he had a story about his money being tied up in trust funds. And uh, when they moved into this, uh, this house, $6,500 a month uh, house uh, on Balboa Island, um, he said he didn't want his name on the lease because of uh, tax concerns. Um, she, she paid for it. He said that he would, uh, take care of the utilities and stuff and occasionally paid for things. Deborah believes that, um, he was stealing money from her the whole time. He was taking cash out of her, uh, out of her accounts. Um, and so he just had, he had to her what sounded like plausible, convincing explanations for why these stories didn't add up. And he had, he had clearly thought this stuff through. He was a a couple steps ahead. He knew what questions he needed answers
1: to. He was slick. He was a con man. What about the part, though, that he's a doctor and he's not bringing home a paycheck? How do you explain that?
0: He said that he was doing um, under-the-table work for people who didn't have insurance, who paid in cash, because he was a good guy and he wanted to help them.
1: Hmm. All right. So how long before they were married?
0: It was just a few weeks. Um,
1: From when they met?
0: Yeah, I believe they met in October and uh, married in uh, December, so uh, less than two months, I believe. So what
1: was that wedding was, like? Where and how did they do that?
0: Uh, she was in Vegas for business. He tagged along, and um, they decided to get married, and it was one of those uh, hasty weddings. Um, you, can, you can see a, a clip of it on the LA Times uh, website.
1: So did Deborah tell her family that she married him?
0: She kept it from them for a while. Uh, because she knew that they would disapprove she uh, she knew they would tell her that she was rushing into it
1: and so what was the reaction when they found out?
0: they uh, they questioned her judgment um, they'd been dismayed by her dismayed and exasperated I guess uh, by her choice in men uh, before um, and so they didn't know who this guy was. they didn't like him um, and he seemed to be uh, he seemed to be determined to drive a wedge between her and her family.
1: You know, it, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish that thought.
0: Which was part of his M.O. I mean, when these guys infiltrate your life, part of their part of their goal is to separate you from the people that you love, that care about you, and uh, and I could I can try and talk some talk some sense into you. When uh, <clears throat> I mean he. He basically did to her what a guy like Charles Manson does to his followers when he took him to Death Valley, or uh, Jim Jones did when he took his uh, his disciples to Guyana. Uh, isolation is the goal. Isolation keep you untethered from reality. Keep you untethered from um, from people who love you and know you.
1: He brainwashed her. He tried to brainwash her. What
0: I think, yeah, I think he was. I think he was very good at manipulating people. He saw people's vulnerabilities and, uh, and exploited them ruthlessly.
1: All right, so there's one thing that you and I have not discussed. This is all juxtaposed against something that had happened earlier. She had lost her sister. What happened, and how did that color this whole thing?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting story. So in 1984, uh, her sister Cindy uh, was shot and killed by her husband, Billy, and um, in their home in Garden Grove. He came up behind her and shot her in the back of the head. They were getting divorced. And he went to trial uh, on a charge of murder. Now, Deborah's mother and uh, uh, Arlene, who's also Cindy's mother, she got on the stand and said basically that she still loved and uh, that she forgave uh, Billy, who had killed her daughter. Hmm. And this astonished the prosecutor and uh, it helped win an acquittal uh, for, uh, for Billy on the murder charge. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter and got, I think, less than three years. So forgiveness played a very large role in this family. Uh, forgiveness taken to an extreme, you might say. And uh, Deborah grew up not able to forgive the guy who had killed her sister uh, and feeling that something was wrong with her because she couldn't. Um, that's how seriously the family took that, uh, took forgiveness as a value. So when she finds out that John is not who he says he is, when she finds out that he's got this big stack of restraining orders and a criminal record um, and that he's all over these websites like datingpsychos.com where women are posting warnings about him, saying he's a sociopath and a predator, uh. He basically says, um, "Look, not all of this is true. I've made some mistakes," um, and he begs, he begs her forgiveness. He begs her to take him back. He says, "I knew that um, a high-powered businesswoman like you uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't date me if she knew the truth about me. Uh, I didn't want to tell you my, you know, that I had a record." Um, I just wanted to get I wanted you to give me a chance. And she takes him back even after she discovers that he's got a, uh, a long, uh, a long criminal history. And, uh, you know, forgiveness uh, is part of it.
1: Now, we're talking about somebody, Chris, who's got a long criminal background in history. He did a 17-month stint in a Michigan prison once. They did go to that website that you're talking about, and they found out what other people were saying about him. They hired a PI, the family did at one point, right. and found out some other terrible things that he had done. It's one thing to manipulate. That's bad enough. But we use the phrase manipulate and intimidate. Like, What are the types of things that he would do to other women and other people who did not do what he wanted them to do?
0: Oh, he would do terrifying things. I mean, uh, I talked to a woman who said that when she tried to break up with him, he would, uh, he would stalk her. He would, uh, well, there's this one woman, a Brazil. I didn't talk to this woman, but I got her account. And this is the case from Laguna Beach that landed him in prison. She's, she was a 48-year-old Laguna Beach woman, a Brazilian romance novelist. And this is a scary story. She's waking up from brain surgery in a hospital in San Diego. And John Meehan is standing over her bed in surgical scrubs and a flip chart. He's not a doctor there. He's probably in the hospital going from room to room, uh, plundering them for drugs that he can take or that he can sell. Uh, That's why he's there probably. So she wakes up, she sees him, uh, and she believes that he belongs there. Now, why is a guy who doesn't belong in the hospital roaming the halls freely. I talked to a investigator with the uh, DA's office who said uh, in all his years of experience, he's learned that doctors are sacred, they're not questioned. So if he can walk with the correct swagger and talk the right jargon, um, he can basically move unimpeded through these hospitals and that's what he's doing. So um, he gets her number, she falls for him, they start dating, she has some family money. He convinces her to transfer her money to him to keep it away from her soon-to-be ex-husband and when one of her friends says that's not the best idea and She hesitates. He begins terrorizing her steals her passport begins stalking her begins uh, Sending her photos of the exterior of her house to let her know she's being watched Also photos of the interior of the house to let her know that he's able to get inside he also sends to her family Uh, naked photos that uh, he once begged her to send to him. Um, His technique all along is mining for data, coaxing information and sensitive information out of people so that he can weaponize it later. That was his MO. This woman went to the Laguna Beach police. Uh, they, They did a search warrant of this little storage unit that he kept in the desert in Cathedral City. And there they found cyanide, they found zip ties, and they found a gun. Um, the, uh, the point of all of those things has never been explained, but the speculation is he was planning to kill this woman after taking her money. Hmm. I mean,
1: terrifying stuff in and of itself, just terrifying but this is somebody he didn't know. How about something much closer to home? You also tell a story about how his sister Donna left John alone with his father, who was dying of cancer in hospice. What happened then?
0: Well, according to the according to the sister, uh, she leaves for a while. Um, John is there. She comes back. The dad is dead. Uh, there's no there's no real evidence, uh, but she suspects that it's possible. John. Gave the father something to uh, to hasten his demise. He was in hospice, and he was dying. But the sister thinks not quickly enough uh, for John to, to John's satisfaction.
1: In other in other but, words, but, but but the dad was
0: cremated, so there's no
1: was no autopsy. Yeah, yeah. But her speculation is he was tired of waiting for an insurance payout, so maybe he injected him or did something to hasten that process when she left the room. In short, theoretically, allegedly, reportedly, whatever you want to say, he may have killed his own man, his own father, for an insurance payout.
0: It's, may po- it's possible. The, the, the sister seems to think that's possible, and he
1: certainly would have had the medical know-how to do it. All right, so knowing what we know, so Deborah and John are together, and Deborah finally now is getting this information, and it's irrefutable. Why did she go back to him in the face of so much incriminating evidence?
0: she was in love and he was very good at what he did but I think even when she went back to him there was these you know she had uh she had nagging nagging doubts and she she kind of knew that uh this wasn't going to work particularly because he remained extremely hostile to uh to her kids and um I think it reached uh it reached the boiling point when uh, he finds out that she's sending money to her daughter so that she can enroll in real estate classes. And uh, he sends the daughter... Uh, oh, he says uh, something along the lines of, I'm going to throw her in the ocean and she won't come out. Um, and he sends very hostile texts to the, to the, to the daughter. Um, I mean, I have a long... I have a, a thick record of this guy's nasty emails and nasty texts and the hardest part of doing the podcast I have to say was channeling this guy just in reading his text because the level of uh, the level of nastiness in them is really off the charts and uh, what I was able to read um, uh, vile as they were were really some of the milder ones that the guy that the guy wrote.
1: So let me ask you this before, before we go any further, did Deborah finally got to a point where she knew she had to leave him, but it wasn't that easy, right? What was the process? How did she get away from him? And what were the steps that she took to stay away from him?
0: Oh, well, she began hiding money because she began giving money to a friend and a daughter. Um, She bought a house in uh, Henderson, Nevada, uh, with the idea that at least he'd be away from her children. Um, And so uh, he begins living there while she's in Orange County. And uh, she goes to a uh, a lawyer, and she tries to get a restraining order on him, citing all of the things that he's done. And by now, the lawyer has a uh, a thick stack of uh, of reports documenting this guy's history, and uh, she can't get a restraining order because uh, a he's out of state, and b he's never physically harmed her. Uh, this surprised a lot of people when they when they uh, when they learned that. Even with a record like this, um, she couldn't get a restraining order. But that sets the stage for uh, what happens in the middle of uh, 2016 where she is living out of hotels, she's wearing a wig, she is um, working out of hotels trying to run her business and uh, terrified of them and uh, is told by uh, a psychologist that she hires... Um that uh, that he's probably, he's probably um, not going to hurt your, uh, now what is what does he say? There's some there, there, there's some disagreement about just how dangerous he is because he hasn't really done anything violent. but what changes is when he steals her jaguar right out of the parking lot of her business and sets it on fire and is caught on tape, setting it on fire. And for a lot of people, this signals that he's now hands-on. He's elevated it beyond just, uh, just words, just texts, just threats. Um, it elevates it to a new level of danger.
1: Let me ask you this. Were the kids afraid that he would come after them? And was she afraid that he would go after the kids?
0: Uh, I think that um, Jacqueline was worried. Uh, because she had sort of led the, uh, the campaign against him. Uh, Tara was worried, but I think Deborah was less worried on behalf of Tara because John seemed to like her. Of all the kids, she seemed to be the least troublesome. Why? Okay. She's, well, um, Tara is uh, soft spoken, um, docile seeming. Um, the first word everybody uses to describe her is, uh, is sweet, um, very, very quiet and uh, loves animals. Um, and, uh, she'd had some run-ins with John, but mainly wanted to stay out of his way and, uh, didn't go out of her way to provoke confrontations with him. So of all the people that he might've gone after, terrorists seemed the least likely.
1: Let me ask you about John and his ties to organized crime. I mean, was that in fact legitimate? And what did he learn from the mob? Like what ethos did he take away from the mob?
0: Revenge is a dish best eaten cold, right? He liked to say that. He liked to say that uh, when the mob wants to take care of an enemy, they don't go after the enemy directly. They go after the family. And uh, apparently this is something he absorbed from his uh, his dad and his uncle. He claimed to be a direct lineal descendant of uh, Albert Anastasia, the Lord High Executioner for Murder, Inc., who uh, died in the 50s on the floor of a barbershop in a photo you might have You might have seen Um, the sisters, at least one of the sisters, uh, told me that this was um, a great uncle or something like that. And I tried to trace the linkage, but I couldn't. I did find that the Meehans are related to the Anastasias, but I don't know if it's the same Anastasias. So he grew up with this. This was the family lore and he used it to burnish his, uh, his aura of, uh, of menace and swagger. He liked the idea of being related to a gangster. Hmm. And he liked to talk like a gangster. Um, whether
1: he was really related, I can't say. So you mentioned Tara. Tara's the youngest daughter. Tara loved the show The Walking Dead. Why does Tara like that show so much?
0: Because it's a fount of uh, survival techniques, if you watch it for that purpose. Um... She says that uh, part of, the, part of the, the fun of the show is uh, imagining what she would do in these situations. It was sort of her, her ritual with her, uh, her boyfriend at the time, Jimmy. They'd sit down and they'd watch the show, then they'd watch it again, and then they'd watch The Talking Dead. Um, and it was sort of how they, uh, they got together. I think he turned her on to it, but then she, she became really, really interested in the show. And... Uh, she also liked uh, Dexter, and that's how she says she learned how to hold a knife properly. She never took any self-defense classes, with the exception of one quick class, I think, uh, way back in high school. Uh, but she, you know, she studied, she studied these shows as if they were, uh, they were preparation for the real thing.
1: So what did that show say was the best way to kill a zombie? Well, you gotta get the head.
0: You got to kill the head. That's the first axiom of zombie combat. You got to kill the head.
1: All right, so what was her biggest takeaway from that show? Was it a skill or was it a mindset? Kill or be killed
0: is what she told me.
1: So Tara's 24. She knows no self-defense whatsoever. How big of a person is she physically? Uh, I think she's about
0: 5'2". 5'2". Now, she works in uh, dog kennels. Uh, she loves animals, so she's got strong shoulders, strong arms. Um, got to be able to muscle the German Shepherds around and carry the big bags of uh, of
1: dog food. So uh, she's strong, but she's small. And Dirty John, I mean, part of his appeal to the people that he preyed upon—this was a big, strong, physical, strapping guy, right? What was he like physically? He
0: was six foot two, built like a football player. Um, to my mind, uh, clearly on steroids. Because his body changed dramatically between his 20s and his 40s. Yeah, he looked like a weightlifter or a football player or a a linebacker. Um, But by the time he confronted Tara on that rooftop parking garage in Newport Beach, he had lost a lot of weight. Um, He was still probably... uh, I don't remember exactly how much he'd lost, but he was... He'd lost 50 or 60 pounds, um, still a big guy, and he still had the edge on her because he had planned, I think, to uh, to kidnap her. Let uh, I me mean, let me ask I mean, you right there.
1: Then okay, so we're talking about a confrontation that we yeah, haven't gotten I'm getting, to yet. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's all talk right. about the confrontation. All she right. comes home from work one day. She works at this kennel. She's getting ready to go out for a concert. She gets out of her car. What happened?
0: Yeah, this is the Coronado's apartments in uh, in Newport Beach, uh, and this all happens in the uh, in the parking garage, an open air parking garage, and. What time of day? It's. Uh, it's in the late afternoon, uh, about four or five o'clock. The sun is still out, and there are balconies overlooking this this parking garage. So a lot of people are going to hear something or see pieces of this. And so she's she's uh, coming back from work at the dog kennel, and she's preoccupied by the Jason Aldean concert that she's going to at Irvine Meadows with a friend that night. She's got tickets. And uh, that's what she's thinking about. She also has her dog, an Australian shepherd named Cash, uh, with her. And she pulls up and in the stall right next to her is uh, a car she doesn't recognize. And standing by the open trunk is a person she doesn't recognize. Uh, And he seems to have a tire iron or something. Her dog begins barking and growling. She quiets the dog, not thinking this is anything really to be worried about. She doesn't have uh, her knife on her. She doesn't have pepper spray uh, handy. And he comes at her with uh, a long silver knife that he's got concealed in a Del Taco wrapper. And uh, he grabs her around the waist and he begins trying to yank her toward his car. In the trunk of his car, which is open. He's got uh, what the cops call a "kidnap kit." He's got zip ties. He's got uh, camouflage duct tape. Um, he's probably planning to uh, to kill her. Uh, and I, I think his motive is to punish his estranged wife, Deborah, by going after the daughter. That's my guess. Although he leaves no notes, so it's not it's not really really clear uh, what he had in mind. Um, And she, uh, decides that she's not going to go without a fight. And so what happened? Would you like to know? Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. So what happens? A confrontation ensues. Then what happens?
0: She bites his hand. Um, the dog lunges at, uh, Meehan's, uh, legs and, uh, sinks his teeth into the legs. They tumble to the ground. She screams. He's on top of her, straddling her with a knife raised above her. This is what people see from their balconies, including a 14-year-old junior lifeguard named Skylar Sepulveda who sees this and without a thought for her own safety, runs right to the scene. Um, Now, Tara is wearing... One second, Chris. Others, Others see this and do nothing? Well, there were people who ran to the scene. It happened rather fast, and there was no camera... That recorded all this, so it's not clear who arrived at what point. But Skylar told me that as she was running to the scene and Tara's screams were filling the air, there were people that she saw just sort of standing there passively, which is which is pretty disturbing. Um, there were some people who ran to help. Uh, but here's here's what Tara does. She's wearing now. Now there's just this amazing confluence of. Um, of, uh, of lucky factors. She's wearing these thick treaded rain boots, right? Because she was working that day and she wears these rain boots when she hoses out the dog kennels and the cages. And, and when he comes down on her with a knife, she is pedal kicking on her back and she manages to get his hand in just the right spot And the knife flies from his hand and lands on the pavement uh, right by her right hand. And she just happens to be right-handed. And all of this stuff she's privately rehearsed uh, for years um, somehow kicks in. And she grabs the knife and uh, she defends herself uh, 13 times. She stabbed him
1: 13 times.
0: The final... The final one goes uh, through his eye into his brain.
1: The final one was through the eye into the brain. The kill shot. What does she say about that?
0: (laughs) Uh, She says, I guess that was my zombie kill. She did not want him to get up like they do in horror movies and come back after her. You
1: know, what's amazing to me is she saw that show so many times and she was able to incorporate that. But, you know, it's one thing to see that. But you don't know how it's going to show up, if in fact it's going to show up, and whether or not you can actually do that. I don't care how much training you have, but in that moment, she was able to do that. What did she do then? She picked up the phone, and she called her mother. What did she tell Deborah?
0: Yeah, she says, uh, Mom, I'm so sorry. I think I killed your husband. Um, and uh, it's a chaotic scene. At first, nobody really knows the bystanders who are rushing to the scene. Nobody really knows... Uh, who who attacked whom or whatever. And uh, uh, I talked to a guy named uh, Pernell Gaston. He was a, uh, a passerby. He's walking his dog. He hears Tara screaming, get him away from me, get him away from me. Call my mom. Um, he gets to the scene and he finds Meehan lying face down, bleeding from the head. They flip him over and he says, He sees uh, one of Meehan's eyes is closed. The other is uh, protruding halfway out of his skull. He says he has this vivid memory of this one crystal clear blue eye staring up at him. Um, And uh, Meehan is dying at this point. But uh, a woman arrives and uh, she says, we got to revive him. We got to do CPR. And... This didn't make it into the original story, into the original podcast. I learned this afterward. She jumps on top of him and despite the blood, puts her mouth right up against me hands and starts breathing into his mouth, trying to revive him. And uh, Purnell told me it was the gutsiest, ballsiest thing uh, I've ever seen. Uh, when the cops arrive, this woman vanishes. And I don't think she's ever been identified. But it's an indication that there, uh, there were some good Samaritans there. Uh, but in the chaos of the scene, they really didn't know what was going on, um, and in the end, uh, I don't think it had much uh, effect on the outcome.
1: Hmm. Chris, what about Deborah? What kind of feedback has Deborah received from this entire thing, and what's that been like for her?
0: Well, I think uh, I think Deborah has been uh, criticized for her choices in this, and. Uh, it upsets me that I wasn't able to put some of the domestic violence stuff in greater context. That's my great that's my greatest regret in terms of uh, how I put the story together in the podcast because I, I didn't anticipate that uh, the people would react quite the way they did, but um, so what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I don't think it's going to encourage uh, another victim to come forward and uh, tell her story if you uh, if you pillory them. Um, I think that uh, she's uh, been very brave in coming forward and telling her story at the risk of uh, uh, embarrassment. Um, and you know, I think she's she's trying to own her story. She feels guilty about the things that she did. Um, and in the end, I think her motive is to uh, to help other women. Uh, help them understand uh, how it's possible to get in these traps and maybe maybe find a way to spot the signals and uh, get out of them in, uh, in time to save their lives.
1: I know what you're saying. I mean, if you're a victim like that and you're taking all sorts of heat, what's the incentive to come forward if you're another victim? But still, these questions pertain, right? I mean, people wonder, how could somebody that smart, that successful, that sharp continue to make choices like that and let this guy back in? You're very close to this story. So how do you respond to that?
0: This is what I said last night at the, uh, the event we had at the Ace uh, Hotel. Um, I said, imagine, that, uh, imagine your own vulnerability. We all have a, vulner- a blind spot or an area of, uh, of vanity or naivete. Uh, and imagine there's a, a person out there uh, whose sole job is to find it and exploit it in a way that uh, is going to destroy you. Um, imagine that this guy has honed this like a uh, uh, you know, ho- honed this like a science. Um, that's pretty much what uh, what Meehan did. By the time he got to Deborah Newell, he had been training for this role, like an actor training for a part for most of his adult life. And he was able to fool her because uh, he threw himself into it like an actor uh, in a role. And I... I I'd like to paraphrase something that a writer named uh, William March wrote in uh, *The Bad Seed*. He talks about he talks about sociopaths, and he says, uh, well, you know, if you look at a piece of plastic fruit, a plastic uh, peach in a in a fruit bowl, it looks better than the real thing. It uh, doesn't have the uh, the imperfections or the blemishes that a real piece of fruit might have. And a sociopath, in a way, is um, is a counterfeit human being in that way. He's a better husband, more doting, more affectionate than uh, the real thing could possibly be, and it was this sort of thing that allowed him to fool Deborah Newell and a lot of other people.
1: So they try and go forward now as a family. That's a great analogy. That makes perfect sense to me. How is Deborah with her kids now? What's their relationship like?
0: Um, I saw them all last night. They seem to be. They seem to be great. Um, De- Debra said that she feels, uh, she feels guilty about, uh, about all of this. But, uh, I think, uh, I think they're close. That was her fifth marriage. Is she dating again? I don't know. I don't think so. Hmm. I think she's a little gun shy at this point
1: understandably. Chris, what about the process? I mean, for somebody who's been in this business and this game as long as you've been, this is something very, very different. How did this become a podcast? And then what was involved in that process for you as a print guy, a longtime print guy?
0: Yeah, I've been doing this for 20 years, right? Um, Started at the Daily Pilot in Costa Mesa, uh, went to the St. Pete Times, uh, came to the LA Times maybe 10, 11 years ago, and uh, published probably 1,500 plus stories, something like that. And print is print has always been my idea of the be all and end all, you know, this, that, that, uh, and so I'm a little bit, uh, divided about the, uh, (laughs) about the attention this is getting because it surprises me. Um, but, uh, I can't say I'm anything other than, uh, than delighted that a story is reaching a lot more people than any of my, uh, my print stories ever have. And it's, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a believer in adapt or die, and this is a good. This is a good way to get our stories, to get our journalism, to um, to a lot of people. And if it directs some people to our website, and uh, it causes a few people to subscribe to the L.A. Times who might not have seen our stories before, then I think it's uh, it's served a good purpose.
1: You know, but you're a print guy at heart, which I respect. I admire. I mean, you want to make sure that the written version is not just an afterthought to the podcast, right? But that can be challenging when the podcast is being downloaded millions of times. So how do you do that?
0: Well, the pod... So the print version is not just a transcript of the podcast. Okay. Uh, it uh, It is its own thing. And I'm hearing from people who have no interest in the podcast at all who uh, still love the story who've just read the uh, who've just read the print version
1: are there differences between the two are there things that are in the print version that are not in the podcast and vice versa
0: yeah there are a few sections that are different the beginning is uh, is different uh, the beginning of the podcast starts with the autopsy report and Matt Murphy documenting the uh, the various wounds that meehan has in the print version it begins with the first date that uh, that Deborah and John have um, so yeah there are differences and I I would encourage everyone who uh, heard the podcast to read the story and vice versa.
1: Before I let you go, let me ask you this. If for something like this to happen in Newport Beach, Newport Beach, how unusual is that?
0: Uh, it's generally a pretty peaceful place. It's uh, it's an affluent place. Um, you might get a murder a year or uh, a couple in a bad year. But um, from my years of covering crime in that area, and I've been covering strange cases in Newport since uh, I worked for the Daily Pilot, Back in the uh, the mid-90s, the cases that you do get out of Newport are uh, are very strange and interesting, um, especially when they involve money.
1: And they do, and that's why he was there. So finally, it's, it's the story of a lifetime for a reporter, or is it, Chris? I mean, do you think you'll come across something else this compelling with this sort of intrigue going forward? You'd like to think so, but realistically, do you think you'll ever see anything like this ever again? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, good. <laughs> right? I'm still a young man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what are you working on right now? If not that, but what are you working on right now? Got a lot of irons in the fire.
0: There's an interesting trial at the Orange County Courthouse that I'm going to be covering, um, involving a a man abducted and uh, taken to the desert. And uh, yeah, that might, that might yield an interesting story, but generally I've got a, uh, I've got a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of stuff going. And remains to be seen what's going to rise to the surface.
1: It would seem self-evident, but if folks want to find Dirty John, either in print form, podcast, or both, how do they go about doing that?
0: Go to latimes.com. You can read the story. You can Google Dirty John uh, and Goffer, G-O-F-F-A-R-D. You can go to Wondery, which is the podcast network that produced it, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y, or you can go to iTunes, uh, Spotify. Um, it's available on, uh, on all the podcast networks. It's pretty easy to find, and uh, I'm pretty easy to reach. My email is at the end of the story.
1: That's it. That's a wrap. 17 pods in the can, and you can't say that this one was not different and unique, and that's exactly what I'm going for here. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Gofford as much as I enjoyed having it, and if you did, go ahead and let him know. He's on Twitter at LAT chris LATChrisGofford. L-A-T, as in L.A. Times, Chris Gofford. Find his handle and tweet him your reaction. Plus, the next episode drops on the 19th, and then we'll take our first week off from the podcast until the new year. And when we get back then, you can catch our daily radio program on CBS Sports Radio and CBS Sports Network when we debut the simulcast on TV for the first time ever. So lots happening in the jungle in the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned because I've got a ton of content coming your way. Radio, TV, and of course, right here on the Jim Rohn Podcast. Thank you, as always, for the support. And remember, the conversation is always happening on Twitter. Hit me up at Jim Rome. Catch you all soon. Until then, I am out.